when we're going hunting in the library. When the Jack of All Trades is actually a master. When believing the elves was a bad idea. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Lennon, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ostron. And I'm Ryu. And this is the 226th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, October 1st, and released Wednesday, October 5th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ryu, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventurers Pack, Ostron's been keeping a database of critters. Hopefully that's a list of creatures and not a list of Critical Role fans. Anyway, next we check out some D&D news as we take a look at how the next edition is going back to the future with the latest Unearthed Arcana for the one D&D playtest expert classes. After that, we take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep to learn all about Lord Soth, also known as Strahd Light, before finally heading into the scrying pool to see what you all have to say. Now that takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventures packs. Do you always carry this picture bag? If we're gonna get out of here, we're not gonna need a few things. Name one thing you're gonna need the stupid roll for! So, as some of you may be aware, I have dabbled in writing material for the DMs Guild, and many other people have attempted to do the same thing. One of the largest challenges that is present with doing that sort of thing is making the document and everything in it look comparable to the formatting that exists in the official resources that Wizards of the Coast puts up. Also on occasion, some people like to have materials or stat blocks or whatever that still look like they came out of official resources for whatever reason, even if they're not creating an entire resource to put on the DMs Guild. So, the website CritterDB.com is a... I'm going to call it a loose database, and... The main purpose of the site is to give you an easier interface to create monster stat blocks that both look like and are formatted as stat blocks like you'd see in the monster manual or any other resources where they present monster stat blocks in official Wizards of the Coast books. So the landing page immediately throws up some samples for you to look at, most of which were created by other users. And that's one of the interesting things about this site, is if you want to, you can upload or present any of the creature stat blocks you create, and they will be visible to the public. And several people have done that. So when you first land on the front page, you get a list of creatures that other people have created. And they're all full stat blocks with the attributes, the armor class hit points, special abilities, actions, the description of what they look like and what they do, etc. And you can just go to town. So in order to use it, you do have to create a login, which 
it's free. They don't require a credit card or anything, but you do have to jump through those little hoops and, you know, go to an email, grab the welcome letter, link back in, but then you're ready to go. So you click on the My Critters link. You open up a bestiary, which is how the site organizes collections of creatures, and then you can start right in. So when you're creating a creature, rather than giving you just a large block of window to fill out and it tries to fill in the formatting, it gives you fillable forms for each section of the stat block. So the bit at the very, very top before the first line, it has the creature's name, the description of what type of creature it is, the environment they're in, the alignment, and so forth. Then you go on to the race, which that's the little italicized text that appears below the creature's name. Uh, and you also pick the languages it knows and so forth. There are six tabs that the form is organized into that correspond to different pieces of information that you can fill out on the stat block. And this is really nice because, first of all, the text fields are all organized, so you don't have to worry about things running over or trying to fiddle with fonts or font sizes or anything like that. You just type it into the appropriate text entry field, and then it will put it in the stat block for you. Also, any other things like the size or the alignment or the attributes are all done as limited entry fields. So for example, when you're choosing the creature's size, it's a drop-down box that lists all of the official size categories that exist for D&D, such as tiny, small, medium, large, huge, etc. So you don't freeform type it in, it gives you a list of all the official ones. And when you're inputting languages, it works like when you're entering in tags for different articles or whatever. So you start typing in DRA and it'll say draconic and AB gives you abyssal and so forth. And then you can click on whichever one applies. So once you've filled all that out, it produces the stat block for you. Now you get the stat block evolving as you type so you can see what it looks like on the right-hand side of the screen as you go. But at the end, it gives you the fully filled out stat block. And once you've got that, you are able to share it, as I said, with the website and the rest of it. You can also copy it which is helpful if you're creating a lot of creatures that are similar in type. So, for example, if you want to create six or seven different kind of orcs, a lot of the things about those orcs aren't going to change from creature to creature. Probably most of the attributes will be mostly the same. The creature types will be the same. The speed's probably not going to change. The languages are going to be in common. So copying them is helpful because then you only have to go in and change the things that actually differ from creature to creature. The other thing you can do is export it. Now exporting is a little odd because of the options they present. You can do an image, which just gives you an image version of the stat block. 
which is helpful if you want to insert that into the aforementioned documents you're putting on the DMs Guild or wherever. You can also export it to JSON or HTML if you want to try to embed it in a website or something like that. You also, they have a pseudo affiliation with a website called Natural Crit, uh, which is one of the sites that allows you to create a document formatted like a Wizards of the Coast resource. They do the entire document. This website allows you to export the monster stat blocks in a format that will make it very easy to insert it into natural crits input fields. You can also, if you want to, just download it as a text document. But you do have to go into the export to natural crit option in order to see the download as text. Which brings me to one of the first major cons for this site, which is it's not necessarily the most intuitive. The interface is very much one that looks like they found a template for the website off of somewhere, possibly a message board site, but they didn't do very much to dress it up or sort of hide the the more interfacey programmery parts of the interface. So it's functional and I won't say it's obtuse or obscure, but navigating around, it can sometimes be a little tricky to figure out where you have to look or what you have to click on. The other downside to this site is it's only an input and formatting assistance tool. You still have to make everything up yourself. It does not have a feature where anything can be auto-generated you can start with someone else's creature and edit it to your own liking and save it in your own bestiary. So you don't have to start completely from scratch necessarily, but there's no facility to have it auto-populate a bunch of the information based on, for example, the type of creature there is or what challenge rating you're going for. It doesn't even calculate the challenge rating for you, as useless as that would be anyway. The final thing that's a little bit of a gotcha, the public libraries that people post are basically unregulated. It doesn't seem like there's any sort of moderation going on. As a result, you can find some copyrighted material on there. And some of the other material may not be completely safe for work in some cases. So if you are really, really against the idea of running into copywritten material when you're looking through a site, that's going to be present here. Also, probably take a look at what exactly you're opening for a creature stat block before there are surprises you may not want to deal with. But if you're looking for a way to create nicely formatted creature stat blocks and you don't want to fiddle with word templates or anything like that this is a site that gives you an option so one thing that i found on this whilst you were talking through it is there is also a search functionality but you can only search for a creature by name and i like the idea of using this as a pool of home brewed beasties and the fact that you can't search by 
anything else is a little bit annoying, I find, because I get that there's a load of published bestiaries, but unless they name the bestiary something that is helpful, like, oh, I don't know, there's one here called uh, Residence of the Library. Okay, that's cool. But then there's another one here that is just called Denizens. There's no way of knowing by looking at that what the quality of the monsters is inside, what sort of things you get. So I think it would be cool if they enhanced their search functionality. Outside of that, though, I do really like this. There are so many creatures on here, especially if you go by the... Uh, arrange them by popularity. You can find, like you said, there's all the copyrighted ones on there. But then they've got a whole list where somebody's taken everything from the Monster A Day subreddit and converted that into stat blocks. And that is super cool and super helpful because those are usually pretty creative. And it's just cool to see them like this in a nice pooled resource. So I really like the ease of creating a new creature on this, with the exception of, like you said, having to create several at a time that might get a little bit tedious. However, they do have a spot for environment and faction on the flavor page, and I put some data in those two fields and I don't see it anywhere on the stat block, so I don't actually know why that's um, there. I believe it feeds into the data that gets exported on that. If you choose the export to the other site, I think it's included in there somewhere. Okay. Like, it's, it's also, it looks like this may have been something that someone planned to expand on and possibly make into a bigger, more user-friendly effort that doesn't seem to have happened. Possibly hasn't happened yet, but may not be happening at all. Well, the other good thing about that, and this is something that I wanted to bring up, is we did an adventurous pack recently on the number of them that had actually died. And this one, there is a GitHub for it. So if you see something that you want to change and you are of a programmery persuasion, then go fork that, put in a pull request, etc. But with it being hosted on GitHub, you know that this is something that will be able to be spun up in the future if the original developer decides to not pursue it anymore. Another thing, you were saying that they didn't have a way to calculate challenge rating, and I'm sitting here going through their challenge rating calculator right now. Okay, what I meant was when you input the values, it doesn't auto-calculate it for you on the stat block itself. What I was hoping, ah, what I was okay. hoping to, so it'll yeah, tell what you I was what hoping the... to happen when I finished it was you put in the armor class, you put in the hit points, and that should be enough for it to start a challenge rating calculation, but that didn't happen. They do, you're right, they do have a tool so, to calculate challenge rating. Okay. They also have a challenge rating table there in case you just want to look right. it up. So that's a nice quick reference. Other than that, I really like this, it's like homebrewery light. Mm. Although, just jumping back a little bit, I don't know why you'd want to look up challenge rating because it's useless. <laughs> See, I was being restrained and didn't say that. Thank you. Uh, you've had a week off. Just let it all loose. It's fine. Links to CraterDB can be found in our show notes, but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at HeroesRiseD&D or by emailing SendingStone at HeroesRisePodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have... 
news. Now, what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? You know I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. When Wizards announced the playtest for 1D&D back in August, they said, and we quote, Get the 1D&D playtest content, try it out in your game, and then provide feedback. Check back each month for new content. End quote. Well, Wizards barely made it. On September 30th, the second part of the 1D&D playtest was released, and they've also updated it to say we can expect new material to drop roughly once a month. This second entry focuses on expert classes. No, 3.5 and 4th edition fans, this isn't some type of Paragon Path style expert classes. You need to go back a bit further, as these expert classes harken back to the days of 2nd edition, and that they're groups of classes that provide a similar role. The experts in this instance are the Rogue, Ranger, and Bard, with the other groupings being Warriors, comprised of Barbarian, Fighter, and Monk, Mages, which are Sorcerers, Wizards, and Warlocks, and finally Priests, which are Clerics, Druids, and Paladins. It's also noted in the UA that the Artificer class is also an expert, but that it won't be appearing in the 1D&D Player's Handbook. So why does class grouping matter? Well, it allows Wizards of the Coast to make changes that apply to a lot of classes at once without needing to specify. For example, if a magic item says attunable only by mages, well, you know the druid and bard won't be able to use it. Further, Wizards of the Coast have said that going forward, party balancing will be done assuming you have one member from each group present. Further, it adds a lot more harmonization to classes, as now every member of the experts group has expertise across the board. Alongside the three classes, this UA also gives us a whole new rules glossary, and also meant Wizards had to put out a video to clarify a few things. The previous changes to critical hits have been reverted, with the guidance now being to use the rules from the 5th edition player's handbook, i.e. all the dice roll them twice. And as of this Unearthed Arcana, the only time you get inspiration, aside from the DM handing it to you, is if your character rolls a natural 1. Also gone is the natural 1 and natural 20 auto-fail auto-success mechanic, again reverting to the existing 5th edition player's handbook rules. This Unearthed Arcana also gives us complete listings for the reworked spell list, with each spell now being a member of either Arcane, divine, or primal groupings based on their power source. A few spells, such as Dancing Lights, Healing Word, and Stone Skin have been reprinted here and changed from their 5th edition versions. Also in the rules glossary are a lot of reworked feats, and the exhaustion system has been completely overhauled. Yes, no longer do you have to look at a table to see how tired you are. Instead, exhaustion is a condition that can progress through 10 levels. For each level of exhaustion, you take a negative penalty to your d20 test rolls and spell save DCs. So if you are at exhaustion 2, you have a minus 2 to attack rolls, saving throws, and ability checks, as well as spell save DCs. If you're at exhaustion 5, you take a negative 5. If you're at exhaustion 10, you're dead. There's also a lot of codification of 5th edition's natural language rules. For example, previously a character would walk into a room, and the player would say, what do I notice in this room? The DM would call for a perception check, and then relay what information the player would know. Now, perception checks are rolled into a specific action, search. Search also covers what in 5th edition would have been insight checks, medicine checks, and survival checks, 
with the rationale being that insight is attempting to detect the creature's state of mind, medicine is having you detect the creature's ailments, and survival is you detecting tracks or food. Similarly, things that would have been covered by Arcana, History, Investigation, Nature, or Religion checks are bundled under the Study action, with the DM asking for a particular d20 test based on the area you are attempting to study. Do you want to study that magic item? That's an Arcana test. Need to figure out how the trap on the door works? Well, that'd be studying traps and that would be Investigation. Also, remember how there was a lot of confusion around whether a spell attack action counted as an attack action, which resulted in Jeremy Crawford giving the oh-so-helpful advice, if an action says it applies to an attack action, then it applies to an attack action? Well, in the language cleanup, they've also simplified that. Now when it's your turn and you want to use your action, you can attack, which takes an action, or you can use magic, which also takes an action. Jumping actions, hide actions, influence actions, it's all been codified. Also on a note of language changes, it appears as if the term cantrip has fallen out of favor. Instead, throughout the document it is called a level zero spell, with the only instances of the word cantrip being on the class's progression table. Speaking of classes, let's get into the plant-based meat of this UA. Much like the codification of certain rules to make their intent much clearer, classes have also been given a tidying up pass, especially in relation to their subclass abilities. Now your subclass will only grant you features at levels 3, 6, 10, and 14. Every other level up comes from your core class. Further, the feat or ability score increase that you would get at levels 4, 8, 12, and 16 are now just choose a feat, with the old ability score increase itself becoming a feat that you can take from level 4 onwards. Additionally, each class's capstone at level 20 now comes at level 18, and in its place at 20 is an epic boon. These are a special type of feat only available at level 20, and whilst there is a suggested epic boon to take, you're really free to just choose whichever one you like, provided you meet the prerequisites. The biggest change to the expert classes, though, is the way that the spellcasters within them now operate, with both the ranger and the bard being prepared spellcasters. Using the bard as an example, at first level, after every long rest, you need to prepare two level zero spells and two first level spells, but you must pick from the arcane spell list and the spells you prepare must be either divination, enchantment, illusion, or transmutation spells. However, you get to choose from your entire spell list rather than a restricted subsection. As you progress in levels, you get to prepare more spells. So at level 10, you can prepare 4 level 0 spells, 4 first level spells, 3 second level, 3 third level, 3 fourth level, and 2 fifth level, for a total of 15 prepared spells. Comparing that to 5th edition, at level 1 a bard knows 4 first level spells, but can only cast 2 of them, and at level 10 they have 14 spells. This change might seem overwhelming at first, however, they do provide a list of recommended prepared spells which you can always default to if you're having a hard time choosing. Also, even if you are planning on choosing your own, you're going to want to take a look over that list because some of the spells are mandatory and you have to have them prepared, an example being Healing Word at 2nd level and Freedom of Movement at 8th level. And this is just the start of it. Wizards of the Coast have also said that in the months ahead, we're going to see revised versions of every class from the 2014 Player's Handbook, 48 subclasses, including the subclasses in this article, new and revised spells, new and revised feats, new weapon options for certain classes, 
a new system for creating a home base for your characters, revised encounter building rules, new and revised monsters, and more. And as the playtest progresses, you'll also see versions of some things that we provided feedback on earlier in the playtest. UA 2022 Expert Classes is now available for download over on the D&D Beyond website or via the links in our show notes. And speaking of incorporating playtest feedback, I think one of the reasons that this Unearthed Arcana got delayed was because the reaction to the critical rules and the auto-success rules in the initial one D&D playtest I don't think they were expecting it to be as vehement as it actually was because a lot of people came out saying that they didn't really like that. And so I think that they had to sort of go through and remove certain things that might have relied on that. But anyway, as it happens, we have an Unearthed Arcana to talk about. We have one that was released in the month of September. Barely, but... Mm -hmm. It is here. So where do you guys want to start? Um, we can start at the top with the with the way that classes now work in the Bard, or if you want to jump into the actions and feats, I'm up for that. I'd like to start by saying something that I noticed that wasn't in the 2014 Player's Handbook. Oh, yeah? For each class listed, it included a guideline list for multi-classing out from that particular class. Mm. And... I liked that they included that with each class instead of having it separate as a blanket set of guidelines. I'm not sure yes. why I like that so much, but I do. Because, I mean, it does, yeah, it makes a little bit more sense because presumably if you're thinking of multi-classing into a different class, you would go to that class's information to say, hey, what do they do? Are they worth taking? And then... As you pointed out, right there is the, if you want to join the legions of bards, this is what you have to be good at. So yeah, that, that makes sense. I hope they continue that and keep that in there. I'm torn as to whether they're trying to... So starting with the bard, I've seen a lot of people say that some of the changes that they've made are trying to force the bard into a more defined role than it currently has. Because one of the hallmarks of bards as they currently exist in 5th edition is you can take them in almost any direction you want, mm -hmm. depending on feat options, subclass choices, and what spells you focus on. And some people are claiming that they're forcing the bard into a little bit more of a controlled box and most of that has to do with the fact that the bard now has a lot more healing forced on it than it used to so one of the ways it can use bardic inspiration now is just a straight up heal and it has healing word and mass healing word along with the two restoration spells grafted on as part of their permanent spell list. And permanent prepared list as well. Right. So, I get what they're saying, I'm just not sure it's a bad thing. I was gonna say, I actually really like that, and I feel like it actually does, it, if you play it to the flavor of an actual bard, I think it really does make sense, because... Bards are there to give encouragement, to build up your players, to relax them after a hard day of battle. That 
makes sense that they would get some healing abilities, in my opinion. I also like it for a completely selfish reason, and that is none of my players like to play a cleric, and um, the only healer in my current game is a bard, <laughs> and that particular player doesn't show up all the time, and yeah. Yeah, I think I think some of the people are probably latching on to the older mechanical view of the bard, which is healing is the purview of clerics and paladins. Bards are supposed to be producing buffs and debuffs to use video game language. Like, the bard might do something to increase your movement, or give you advantage on attacks, or slow the enemy down, or speed you up, but they their job isn't necessarily to just straight up heal your ills, which I think is what's throwing them off. That's a guess, though. I'm I'm sort of assuming a lot. I also think that with the new group-based approach to class management, that this was probably their way of making sure that there was a healer in the experts group. Because, I mean, the priest group is full of people that can heal. That's kind of that thing's shtick. Um, mm -hmm. But the ranger, not really a healer, and the rogue, also not really a healer. The bard is pretty much where that would have to be. And in fact, they get a new um, ability called uh, Songs of Restoration, which you get this at second level. So this isn't a um, this isn't one of your subclass abilities. This is all bards get Songs of Restoration as an ability now. And they are pretty much healing spells all the way down. So I actually think the intention is to make the bard a healer, or at least to give the bard healing ability. I would still say that you would probably want something from the priest's group, um, so yeah. a druid or a cleric, to be able to assist you better with that. But at least you have something that can heal. And, and like I said, it's better for groups that don't like to focus on healing right and i mean we did a i think it was a short rest a while ago like a long while ago about healing without healing i.e when you're not using a cleric and we brought up druids in that as a good example um but yeah i i don't personally i don't see this as being a bad thing you get that thing where some players might be like they are with clerics right now oh you're a cleric you should heal me it's like okay but i'm a war cleric i'm a thunder cleric that's not what i do um i can see that you're getting you I'm might get some a people death cleric that is the opposite that is of the opposite of what i do <laughs> so i can see that you might end up with something similar with the bard that oh you're a bard you should be able to heal me and it's like that's i think that's more of something that individual players need to overcome and understand rather than necessarily a design flaw with the class. If I may, though, I do think it might be a design intention. So one thing I noticed about the subclass that they gave to the bard, it, to me, is a lot less fundamentally shifting than the subclasses that we're used to. I mean, effectively, to me, in my reading of it, the 1D&D version of the subclass gives the bard effectively an extra ability or two that focus on a specific aspect within the bard's repertoire. Whereas the 
subclass from fifth edition was much more, here's what you can use to take your bard in a completely new direction. So for example, the College of Lore in one D&D, the first thing you get are the bonus proficiencies. In one D&D, they're arcana history in nature. You have to choose those unless you already have them, in which case you can choose a new one. In fifth edition, you just picked three, whichever three you wanted. Mm -hmm. And then when you get down to additional magical secrets in fifth edition, you get two free spells from anywhere, anybody cla anybody's class list, which is on top of the ones you already gained from the normal class ability of magical secrets. In one D&D, you don't have that anymore. You don't get more spells, at least not with this subclass. And that, to me, again, focuses the bard a lot more. It forces it to stay more in its lane than it currently can with 5th edition. Now, well, it's... If if I can jump in right there just with a little asterisk, you do still get magical secrets, you do still get the ability to pick from different spell lists, however that is now a class feature that applies to all bards not just down on the College of Law bard. Right, but you also get it a lot later, so the magical secrets kicks in at 11th level and 15th level. In 5th edition you get those a lot earlier. Yes. So it's Again, to me, it looks like they are forcing the bard to stay a bard for longer. Like, if you are a bard, these are the things you are good at. It's not, if you are a bard, pick what you want to do, because the entire player's handbook is your oyster, basically from level three. Which, that's, that's an interesting decision, because the bard's new niche... I think in many people's minds has become you can be almost as good at whatever you want by picking the right combination of feats, magical secrets, and subclasses. But now it seems like if they continue with that same design decision on the subclasses going forward, it's going to be a lot more this is a bard who is good at this one thing, as opposed to this is a bard who is pretending to be an X. Right, and I think the other thing with the way that they've done the College of Law subclass on this one is the old way where you had, um, like, the um, cutting words, uh, for example. You used to be able to use cutting words as a way to reduce damage taken, whereas now it only works on attack rolls or ability checks, so that further cements the healing, quote-unquote, side of it onto the bard as a subclass rather than as you were saying hey if you want to be a healer go into this route if you want to be a you know swordsman go into this route so another thing about cutting words since you mentioned it is that now it only applies on a known success whereas before yes. it was whereas before it was you had to do this before you knew whether it succeeded or failed mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting I like that better honestly another thing that threw me off at first about the bard as it's written here that I ended up thinking about and realizing that, oh no, this is actually a better way to do it, is that bardic inspiration, instead of being number of times equal to your charisma mod, now is number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, which isn't so great 
for the beginning levels, but it ends up scaling better as you level up. So you end up having more uses of it mm. as you get closer to max level. And I thought that that was a, a good way of doing it. Yeah, because if you were rolling for stats, you started out with a really high mod, like you ended up rolling an 18, and so that gave you like a, a really big modifier. You wouldn't end up getting additional Bardic Inspiration dice until you increased your stats or found a magic item to do it. Whereas this, you're going to start out with two, then a fifth level, it's three, ninth level, it's four, and so on and so forth, until you ended up with six at level uh, 17. So, in my opinion, much more fun to play that way. Another thing that I liked that I think, I'm honestly not sure how many other people might like it, but... They gave Superior Inspiration a massive buff. It used to be you get one extra use of it on an initiative roll, as long as you didn't have any other uses left. Now, if you've spent two or more, you get them back on initiative roll. It's massive. Hmm. Yeah, you're going to be handing out Bardic Inspiration left, right, and center on this one. Like candy. Which, I mean, arguably you should have been doing anyway, but it was yes. harder for regular bards to get that back and plus as we already discussed half the time you're burning it on things that you have no hope of succeeding at anyway because woo, i get a d6 added to a two that's that's not going to help anyone so yeah i think they they improved bardic inspiration overall in multiple ways that being a, a huge one and also back to bardic inspiration in the college of lore with peerless skill if the role ends up failing anyway you don't lose the use of that bardic inspiration die you don't use it up which again is just another way for bards to maintain their resources so hopefully this means going forwards that bards will start handing it out a bit more because when i've played in games with bards i've noticed that a lot of them they tend not to use it because it becomes difficult to keep the supply going and it feels like a rare resource. And that then leads to the problem of them forgetting that they even have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So hopefully, by giving them more instances of it, this will allow them to dish it out a lot more than they currently do. Let's, uh, let's talk about the Ranger then. So this one has also gone through... Uh, quite a lot of changes still has the same subclass level up that the all the classes are now getting so that means you only get it on the 3 6 10 and 14 and the subclass that we've got given for this one is the hunter and i realize that there's a lot to dive into on this and so we probably will get to a lot of the individual points but i just want to say the overall feeling of reading this I actually found that I was almost excited to play a ranger. And this reminds me very much of the overhaul that they sort of gave them with Tasha's Cauldron of everything. So they have tweaked a lot of things. They've made the ranger, in my opinion, a lot more viable. And specifically with the hunter subclass, and we will have to wait for the Beastmaster because that is the one that is just completely why bother in 5th edition. With the Hunter subclass, it feels to me like the Rangers have actually found an identity now. Because before, 
fighters were always better rangers but the way that they've done this with the changes to prepared spell casting the um tweaks that they've given them to things like the favored enemy etc i feel that this is like the ranger that we should have gotten because of the tweaks to favored enemy and the basically removal of favored terrain Mm -hmm. i feel like this makes it so that the ranger is not just so boxed in like if you pick the wrong one it won't completely screw over your entire campaign especially because they basically just said you know what screw favored terrain they're just spiders now because <laughs> I mean, at yes. seventh level <laughs> not only do they get an extra 10 feet of movement so you know someone can actually talk to the monk for a while on long trips they get a climb speed and a swim speed equal to movement which mm-hmm. gives it it makes them the sort of circling flanker type attacking that I feel the ranger was always supposed to be Right, they should be scouts, they should be going out ahead, they should be nimble, and this nails that and gives it that identity. Just talking about Favoured Enemy, I feel I should point out, just for anybody who hasn't actually read this, the way that it used to work is it used to be basically pick an enemy type and that's your Favoured Enemy. Now, it's Favoured Enemy in name only. What it basically does is it gives you a concentration-free version of Hunter's Mark that you also don't count against the number of spells that you can prepare or that you know and it's it just works so much better like this that you don't even have to concentrate on hunter's mark which again is another thing that i felt rangers would continually forget to use because it relied on doing concentration checks etc etc another thing about it too is that because it's no longer relegated to being against a specific enemy type monster Mm -hmm. type then you basically get an advantage or a favored enemy every combat assuming hunter's mark works the exact same way it'll be interesting to see if they change the spell i don't know why they didn't just make hunter's mark the class ability true like who else is using it i had that i had that thought as well bards are using it probably i don't know actually (laughs) Are they, though? Because the they're, they're reworking the bard to be more of the Healy support buff guy, so or girl, or whatever. But it's... I, I feel like they should have just pulled the trigger and made Hunter's Mark a class ability. Then they could have done things that were just, you know, this subclass does this thing to Hunter's Mark, and this other subclass does this thing to Hunter's Mark. I mean, to be clear, I like what they did here, because taking concentration off of a spell that everyone else has to concentrate on is a massive power spike for the ranger. Mm -hmm. But I just feel like they should have made it... A feature. A feature, because I don't see the need to keep it as a spell. I mean, obviously we'll have to wait to see what anyone else is doing. Right. By anyone else, I mean the other classes, but I just feel like, at least in 5th edition, the ranger is the only one where it made any sense for them to use a spell slot casting Hunter's Mark, and really only the arrow rangers, because as you pointed out, it's regular concentration, so if you're in melee, every time you take a hit, you're doing concentration. Right. 
Yeah. Um, so this greatly improves the ranger's ability to use Hunter's Mark versus anyone else. I don't know why anyone else would bother to use it. But yeah, other than that, I I really do feel, like you said, the ranger has more of an identity here. And mm. I have, reading the class's abilities, I have a very clear sense of what the ranger is supposed to be doing yes. in combat. Yeah. My only my only concern is I want to see what the fighter looks like because the main complaint that people had other than the beastmaster being useless is that mechanically speaking the ranger can't output damage that goes beyond other ranged attackers. Now, this version of the ranger, when compared to the one D&D version of the rogue, is better, um, or at least different. The ranger produces more consistent damage. The rogue is more like a sniper, if, if they're both using ranged weapons. The ranger will consistently do more damage on each turn. When the rogue hits, the one hit is going to be worse than the ranger's hit. But if the rogue misses, they're done. Yep. So I think they did a good job differentiating a ranger and a rogue from one another. I'm interested to see what the fighter looks like. So going back to not boxing in the ranger, I like that they replaced hide in plain sight with nature's veil. It still is just giving them invisibility, which isn't permanent by any means, but its I feel like it's a lot more applicable in more situations. Yeah, and just things like that, like that change that, it was very much, the changes that they made like that, that was what gave me the feel that the ranger had an identity like Ostrom was just saying about the difference between a rogue and a ranger at ranged combat is that the rogue is going to be more like a sniper but even when i just imagine how a ranger works in non-combat scenarios i've got a very clear picture of how they go as well like if you picture a rogue in non-combat scenarios you imagine them literally being stealthy and sneaky and going through corridors and avoiding rows upon rows of guards and you know, everything like that you imagine a um ranger in a non-combat scenario things like nature's veil now make it to me a lot more obvious that yes they are going to be sneaky but given the changes that they made elsewhere like the roving at seventh level they're also nimble and agile and so yeah i 100 percent agree the the way that they have changed nature's veil just helps solidify what a ranger is and i I'm really glad for this because it, it kind of, and I'm going to choose my words very carefully here, kind of makes me excited to see what they might do with the Warlock because that's the other one that I really have a problem with in 5th edition. So, yeah, fingers crossed. So far, Ranger seems to be moving in the right direction. I guess we wait until we get the Mages thing for that. Uh, but before that, though, let's talk about Rogues, just, you know, on the topic of being sneaky and things. I feel that even though rogues were rebalanced here, that they seem to have gotten away with it a bit more, in my opinion. Um, it seems as if there weren't as many changes done to the balancing of the rogues, other than the things that they're doing to all classes, like the subclass leveling. Um, and the subclass that we get for this is the thief. 
which uh, still has a lot of its signature abilities like second story work and use magic device. It just seems to me like they've changed them to fit in with the one D&D design of... Um, so, for example, on the use magic device now, uh, it says that you can attune to four magic items at once and it talks about scrolls and how you can cast them even if you aren't a mage and don't know what they are um i feel that it's just a lot of tightening up to fit the one D design as opposed to that much of an overhaul i don't know what your guys' thoughts were on this yeah there's some subtle increases to the rogue's power but overall there's not a lot different here it's easier to maintain sneak attack and at later levels it's easier to get advantage on your attack Mm -hmm. but other than that everything else is basically the same except like you said the stuff that they're changing for all the classes to make it fit with one dnd now i will say sneak attack has been tweaked so that you can only do it once a turn and it has to be on your turn at that so i know that that's going to upset a few people who would you know end up doing 150 damage in one turn at level 4 because they managed to sneak attack on everybody else's turn by, you know, a reaction here and a, a hellish rebuke there, etc. Um, but uh, I, f- I feel that actually brings the rogue more in line with what it's supposed to be, which is that kind of see a target, one hit, one strike. Like, that's how it should be. Sneak attacking everything just felt a little off to me in the previous version, so... So, yeah, Sneak Attack got nerfed. But um, but nerfed in line. But only slightly. Only slightly, exactly. But they did make some changes to dual wielding and to weapon fighting that might help to, you know, offset that and make that a little bit a little bit better for the Rogue, so... But we'll come to that. We'll come to that shortly, don't worry. So, did you notice that they added Charisma to the Slippery Mind feature? I did not, actually. That completely slipped me by. No pun intended. So it used to be wisdom only. Ah, but now it's wisdom and charisma saving throws. Mm-hmm. Which is good, because that's what insight checks use. Yep. Which is probably why they did it. Mm. You know, thinking of it, I've never actually... I, I didn't really notice that before, but now that you've pointed it out, why wasn't it this way to begin with? I am unfortunately not a wizard, so I could not tell you. So I think the reason that it worked that way before is because they were thinking purely in mechanical terms. All the spells that mess with your head, if they aren't psionic spells, require a wisdom save. And that's what they were targeting. But conceptually, it makes sense for rogues to have charisma saves because they're, you know, bluffing their way through impersonating other people i was just saying i like that change Mm -hmm. yes yeah no i think it makes sense what do you guys think of the subtle strikes edition in what sense maybe in fact i'm just gonna do what do you think of the subtle strikes edition (laughs) i think that it i think it's a good ad especially since they took away that ability to have sneak attack on every single turn and not just your own. Right, so this one gives you advantage on any attack roll that targets creature that is within five feet of one of your allies who isn't incapacitated. Just to put a list Mm -hmm. of qualifiers on there. Um, Yeah, I like it. I think, again, it speaks to the way that the rogue should be working, which is the pick a target, 
one strike and they work in subterfuge they work behind the shadows they should be able to pick off the targets that are distracted and busy they're the ones that go for the you know the the gazelle at the back of the pack that's what they do it also means they aren't as dependent on hiding during combat to be effective Mm. yeah yeah absolutely yeah granted you're not getting this until level 13 so with most of the published adventures from wizards of the coast the rogues are never even going to see this ability but I do think it's a good one. Shots fired. <laughs> well, that that leads into my rant about the level shifting. All right, so let's go with that then. What is your rant about the level shifting? I feel like they basically admitted that they're never going to do anything with the highest levels. Really? I took this as being a better reason to actually do a multi-class. Because now you're not as punished for going multi-class because you can still get that highest level ability. Right, and that is true. But I don't know how prevalent multi-classing is. I mean, it's because I have both examples in my player group. There were a couple of people who just, for the most part, stick to their class march their way up the tree and never deviate. Whereas I have other people who they pick a class and during character creation they are picking their multi-class and figuring Mm -hmm. out what level they jump. So I don't know how prevalent either group is. You are right in that it makes multi-classing less of a punishment but that's also something where I don't know if that's a good sign but to me it just said we're not designing the characters past level 18 because nobody plays them and we're not going to do anything to encourage them to change that behavior. I see where you're coming from. I still slightly disagree because you still get that epic boon at 20th level. Yes you do. It just... Um, to me, again, it feels it feels throwaway. I mean, not that the epic boons aren't good, but they're, as mentioned before, interchangeable. Like you don't have to take an epic boon specific to your class. You just get sort of a god level ability, whichever one you like. And it just, I don't know, it feels incomplete to me. I might be overthinking it, though. Is there a way to get an epic boon other than getting up to level 20, though? No, not at the moment. So I feel like that's still reason enough to not multi-class. They're just giving you extra incentive to do so with taking the old 20th level feature and putting it at 18th level instead. Yeah, just reading through the epic boons that are on the list, I don't see any that are really going to get people like jazzed about taking one like reading through the epic boons a lot of them are good but they're not amazing like for example the there's an epic boon of peerless aim if you make a ranged attack and miss you can cause the attack to hit and you basically get to do that once per fight but If you're a, let's go with ranger, if you're a ranger who's been focused on archery 
you're probably rolling with like a plus 13 to hit by level 18 or 19. So how often are you really missing your attacks? Depends how many Tarasks you're fighting. It also depends if your name is Gathmimvar or not. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, but I mean, by definition, those are edge cases. You're not fighting a Tarask every time you're in combat, and if you can't roll anything above a nine, that's a personal issue. But I just don't... I don't see a lot of players really, like, sort of being excited to get to level 20 so they can take one of these epic boons. Am I allowed to come in as kind of like a middleman here? And, you know, no. just no. go with the, the hero's <laughs> rise, middle of the road... You know, everything's fine. I'm going to do it anyway, because you can't stop me, quite frankly. Then why'd you ask the question? <laughs> well, just... I thought it would be polite. I see my mistake. It won't happen again. I think that there is actually a bit of Ostrons and Ryu's that is probably going to end up being the final case, which is that right now, the level 20 epic boons aren't great. However, with the fact that they have just said you pick an epic boon, this means that future products can just include a list of epic boons. And if they suddenly want to bring out something like, I don't know, Dungeon of the Mad Mage 2, more dungeon, more madia, or whatever, then <laughs> they could incentivize getting to those higher levels by adding a list of decent epic boons in there. And so I feel that maybe whilst the small offering that we've gotten in this playtest, you know, it's only 37 pages, isn't that enticing, it opens the door for the possibility of future enticement, which is something that right now they don't have a way of saying, oh yeah, your level 20 class ability, oh, you can have this instead. Like it just goes against the fifth edition design. Mm hmm. And speaking of going against the 5th edition design, they've updated a lot of the rules. This had a whole rules glossary attached to it. There's something different that I see in this every time I look it over. And so I initially thought that this was just going to be a lot of, you know, just rehashing of previous things. But they end up doing a lot of stuff in here that has what seems like really minor impacts until you actually come to to trying it and using it and then it seems as if everybody's got an opinion on how all these are going to interact anyway but um in in sort of no particular order let's start with uh exhaustion how do you guys feel about the changes to exhaustion because personally i am loving the way that it works now i sort of like it i don't know if it's going to survive the play test do you think it needs to be nerfed or buffed or no i'm fine with it i don't think people are going to like the math <laughs> Oh, People just... are going to get too frustrated trying to keep track of what's my exhaustion level and I have to add this modifier into everything else and it's just going to be too many people whining. Mm. See, I think I think it's going to stay because I think that the 5th edition designers built exhaustion in to be used a lot more frequently than it does and right now it's an utter pain in the ass. Without looking, can you tell me what exhaustion level 3 does in 5th in edition for clarification? Not me. It halves your speed, doesn't it? it I don't your know. Speed and something Does else. it? Yeah, right. So nobody, nobody really knows what they all are. And I said without looking it up, I hear that keyboard, Ostron. 
I hear it. Well, I already gave my answer, <laughs> so it's... So, um... Okay, so what, what does it actually do? Nope, disadvantage on attack rolls and saving throws. Half speed is second level. See, so when I make the claim at the beginning of the show that we're the wisest adventurers in the land, I meant that we're wise in the fact that we use Google a lot. Anyway, the exhausted <laughs> condition, the way that it works now is obviously you have a level 1 to 10. If you hit 10, you're dead. And you just minus a 1 from anything that you do that involves a d20 roll. I personally think that this is going to make exhaustion 1 so much easier to run at a table because it's very, very easy for players to remember what it is. And if they don't remember, which is Ostron's point, it's very easy for the DM to explain what it does. Secondly, I feel that this means that exhaustion is going to get used a lot more. And I think that there's going to be a lot of good use cases for it because admittedly we haven't seen the Barbarian and Fighter playtests yet, but I can see that it wouldn't necessarily bother them to have a relatively high level of exhaustion. Whereas at the moment, if you try to go into battle with anything more than one, maybe two levels, you are seriously gimped and it can lead to a downward spiral really, really quickly. And finally, I, I'm, I'm secretly wondering if they're going to make a change to the sorcerer class that allows you to take exhaustion in exchange for doing things on your class. Like, the whole point of sorcerers is that magic is an innate ability, so having one, like, dig deep, I managed to get the spell off, but now I take three points of exhaustion. I, I can see that this would open the door for things like that to be included in some of the classes. No, like I said, I, I like what they did, because you're right, using exhaustion currently is too much of a hassle because it's a, it's a death spiral. But my concern is that it will become like the bardic inspiration where the dm will be handing out levels of exhaustion and then people will just forget to apply them to the roles and by the time anyone remembers it's too late to matter so oh well we'll just not bother with it whatever i get what you're saying there but also, I don't think that that's necessarily any different than it is now, because people forget what conditions they have all the time. Well, now there's no excuse for it, because <laughs> it's a new start, it's a new dawn, it's a new day. So I was interested to note in reading through the various rules that surprise is dead. It is? Uh, yeah. So if you go back to... You don't even have to go back that far. If you go back to 4th edition and the ones previous to that, surprising the enemy or being surprised was a significant disadvantage for the surprised group or creature, whatever it was. Uh, and it was decently punishing in 5th edition if you could figure out how to apply it. But now they've effectively completely done away with it as something you want to actively pursue because the only thing it does is gives you advantage on your initiative role which okay that's not a small thing but it's nowhere near the amount of advantage it gave you in previous implementations i mean even in fifth edition it would cause people to basically not be able to react and have to skip a turn as well. So right. it was slightly more... 
I'm just going back to the fact that I said earlier, every time I look at this, I find something new that I didn't spot in there before. What is that under? I'm just curious, because I... I... Well, it's... That's the point. It's not. It's hidden in a few different things, like incapacitated, invisible, and... um, I saw it somewhere else. But it's always bolded, so just scroll... Hidden is another place. If you scroll through through you see the word surprise bolded but it's always attached to something else surprised is no longer its own condition there's no such thing as being surprised or having a reaction to surprise it's just if one of these other conditions applies you are either surprised or you are surprising and therefore you get advantage on your initiative roll or disadvantage if you're in the disadvantageous spot. So effectively they did away with surprised as a keyword. Uh, Speaking of keyword changes, the other change that I thought was quite interesting is that if you have a spell and it's one that you've got prepared, then if it has the ritual tag, you can just cast that as a ritual. You do not need a specific feature to be able to cast rituals anymore. And that just makes sense to me. Why wasn't it like that to begin with? Yeah, that seemed like a no-brainer type of change. Mm -hmm. Another interesting one that they've done is now shields require a type of training. And if you don't have the training for shields, you won't get a bonus if you equip one. And that was something that was tucked away in armor training, which is the new way that what used to be called armor proficiency works Mm -hmm. yeah that's that makes sense because i mean in fifth edition as it exists now basically unless you know the barbarian can have his double-handed great axe everybody else take a shield take a shield take a shield take a shield hey everybody gets plus two ac for free Mm -hmm. basically Uh, they also made it harder to knock flyers out of the sky. They have to be incapacitated to stop flying before they only had to be knocked prone. Yes. Yep. That's Mm. another one that's been altered as well. So that's what I mean. Little alters like this that on the surface I look at them and I think that it's not much of a change but it actually does have big gaming impacts. I want a clarification because I'm confused about one of the feats. Or the conceptual gameplay around one of the feats. I have seen a whole bunch of people say, oh my goodness, dual wielding is relevant again. They made it so much better and the feat works. I don't get how. Right. So dual wielding, if you're holding a weapon with a light property in one hand, you can treat a non-light weapon as if it had the light property. So this means you can have one light and one non-light, and they effectively count as two light weapons. Then, and I'm going to need to scroll through the rules here, because I believe that it was in the attack action. Um, And if it's not in the attack action, it might be under light weapons. Ah, here it is. Light weapon property. When you take the attack action and make an attack with a light weapon in one hand, you can make one extra attack as part of the same action. So it's no longer a bonus action to swing your second weapon. It is rolled into the primary 
attack action of using a light weapon. Now it does go on to say that you can add the ability modifier, so it sort of still functions pretty much the same, and it makes it so that you can't dual wield short swords anymore, but it does make the ability to dual wield better because you're no longer sacrificing your bonus action in order to take the second attack of a dual wielding attack. Okay. Does that clarify things for you? Yes. I just... I mean, we don't know enough about what you use bonus actions for yet to say for certain, but it feels like people are a little more excited about this than I think is warranted. Well, potentially. I mean, it's like if you have something like a rogue who gets things like bonus action hide, bonus bonus action? Right. Bonus action dash. Um, Then that allows them to dual wield, which I would say dual wielding is kind of a signature of a rogue in terms of abilities, and they don't have to sacrifice a class ability in order to actually do it. Mm -hmm. But this is what I mean. Again, I know that I've said this a hundred times. You look at something like you read dual wielding and you think, oh, that's a really minor change. When you cross-reference it with light weapons, it suddenly becomes a whole different thing. So no doubt there is going to be stuff that comes out of this well after we've stopped talking about it. And I wouldn't be surprised if some people wrote in for the community questions with things that we completely missed in this. So, And now that we're all caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep and learn all about Lord Soth. I require access to all human knowledge. Oh, you've come to the right place, my boy. Hey, Lennon. You done getting the info for the Dragonlance supplement? Yep, I've been working on it. It's almost there. I just I just need one little thing cleared up, though. What's that? Uh, Cecropia trees aren't native to Kryn, as far as I can tell, so I'm just wondering how they supplement their diet. Um, can... can I see your notes real quick? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And can I see the original request Ostron gave you? Oh, yeah, uh, here. Yeah, thought so. Okay, Ostron! What? What? Rostro isn't even powered up. The batteries are recharging. What is this? That's the research assignment I gave Lennon on Lord Soth. No, this is the research assignment you gave him on Lord Sloth. Oh, well, I mean, that's a typo, obviously. And do you think that stopped him? <sighs> hey, Lennon, come on over. Looks like we're gonna need... Book. Yep, there we go. Oh, good. There's only ten books here. That's a good thing. For Dragonlance, anytime you get less than twenty, you're doing well. All right, let's get on with it. Lord Soth in Dragonlance fills in much the same niche as Wormtongue from Lord of the Rings or the Mountain from Game of Thrones. He is a secondary antagonist in most of his appearances, almost always working at the behest of someone else, and their backstory is fraught. Soth's first appearance in real-life chronology was in the War of the Lance trilogy, the original three. He lived through that conflict, sort of, but we'll get into that in a bit, and became another significant pain for the heroes in the so-called Twins trilogy that focuses on Raceland and Caramon, and the short one whose name starts with a T. I told you before, I can deal with it. I'm fine. Really? Because you just pulled the stitches out of your cloak from wringing it so hard. Oh, not again... Anyway, Soth sat out of the Chaos War books and only had a cameo in the books focusing on the War of the Souls, 
that's the one with the lady who believes she's talking to the one true god who turns out to be the evil goddess Tachesis. Anyway, after that, in real world time, Soth became a major character in the King Priest novels that focused on the Cataclysm. That's where his story starts. Lauren Soth was the son of a noble family in Salamnia on Kryn. He was born in the year 50 PC. PC, for those who don't remember, is pre-Cataclysm, which means Soth was born around 400 years before the events of the first three Dragonlance novels. At that time in Kryn's history, Salamnia was basically a vassal state of Ishtar. Ishtar was the neighbouring country that focused on trade while Salamnia focused on improving their military. Ishtar also, by that point, was firmly a theocracy and they were very aggressive about spreading and maintaining the tenets of their faith. Since Salamnia was basically dependent on Ishtar for everything by then, they just went along with it. Soth joined the Knights of Salamnia and managed, by the age of 44, to attain the honour of being a Knight of the Rose, meaning his combat prowess and honour were impeccable. As far as the former, he had at least five solo ogre kills to his name, as well as winning a one-on-one -on -one fight with a minotaur. At that point, Soth tried to settle down and married a nice noble lady. Unfortunately, he got bored at home and decided to go out adventuring. Happening upon a group of ogres harassing a group of elves, he defeated the ogres and then met the elf Isolde Denisa. Isolde believes she may have sprained an ankle, but after careful examination from five feet away, Soth convinced her she obviously broke it. He insisted that he simply had to take her all the way back to his castle to be cared for by his personal healer, Istvan. Keep Istvan's name in mind. Soth arrives home to the joyous news that his wife is pregnant. A month after that, Isolde is perfectly healthy, but still staying at the castle. Everyone very pointedly avoids bringing this up in conversation. Soth's wife gives birth on schedule, but tragedy strikes. Despite the best efforts of Soth and the healer Istvan, who were the only people present for the event, Soth's wife and child do not survive the birthing process. Soth mourns his wife for six months, as a good and proper knight would do, and then, practically at midnight, there's a small private ceremony where Soth marries Isolde, and everyone in attendance very intentionally ignores the fact that Isolde appears to have a knight's helmet stuffed under her dress. Soth's son, Peridor, is born three months later. A month afterward, Soth is summoned by a high justice of the Ishtarian Church. Being similar to many moralistic religions, they have a dim view of adultery. However, they're a little more concerned with the fact that Soth, you know, murdered his wife and child. See, Soth had sworn Isfan to secrecy about that whole mess, but Isfan was not really okay with it, having witnessed the whole thing. Soth was sentenced to death, but 13 other knights who were fiercely loyal to him broke him out. They holed up in a fortress near Soth's lands. The rest of the Salamnic Order knew that Soth could hold out there a while, and assaulting a castle is not really what knights are best at, so they just decided to banish him. He left with his friends and his wife, Isolde, who figured, sure, he killed his last wife, but that's not really a red flag, that's true love. Isolde was also a devotee of the god Mishakel. Mishakel warned her of the upcoming cataclysm and told her that if Soth rode to Ishtar, the gods would grant him the power to avert it. They also promised that if he died in the process, his full honour would be restored. Soth set off for Ishtar with a few of his loyal knights. On the way, he happened to encounter the elves that Isolde had been travelling with when they first met. Those elves told him that Isolde had actually been running around on him while he was running around on his wife, and he was not the father of the child that Isolde presented as Soth's son. 
Deciding that this issue was clearly more important than the impending end of the world, Soth turned around and headed right back home to have a word with his wife. Just after he finished telling her how she was a cheater and his son clearly isn't his, the Cataclysm hit. For those, again, who don't remember, the Cataclysm was a literal mountain landing on Ishtar because the Krinish gods were annoyed. Soth's residence in exile was far enough away that it wasn't obliterated, but they definitely felt the impact. Their keep was engulfed in flames and a large chandelier fell on a sold and crushed her. She knew she was dying and pleaded with Soth to take his son. Soth, however, believed the elves' story that the child wasn't his and simply left both mother and child to die. In retaliation, Isolde cursed him to live one life for every life lost in the Cataclysm. Remember, the Cataclysm wiped out one of the largest countries in Kryn at the time. Soth died in the Keep, since it literally burned to the ground with flames hot enough to burn the stones of the building. But then he woke up, and all of his charred skin fell off, leaving him a walking skeleton with glowing red eyes, black armor, and the constant pain of his wounds. His loyal knights also got caught up in the curse and were condemned to serve him. Oh, and eventually those elves who told him about his wife were sent back to him as banshees to remind him that he was a cataclysmically bad husband. Soth persisted for a few hundred years as an undead death knight, eventually rebuilding Dargard Keep, the site of his death. When Kidiara came along as a dragon high lord at the start of the War of the Lance, Soth allowed her to use it as her base of operations. He stayed with her through the war and was the one who came up with the plan to kidnap Lorana, the general for the opposing side. Takisa's promised him Lorana's soul as a reward when she was sacrificed, but the heroes of the Lance saved her and severed the link to Takisa's before that happened, leaving the Dragon Army leaders confused and leaderless. Not one to waste an opportunity, Kidiara had Soth help her murder all of the other Dragon High Lords, leaving her as the only remaining commander of Takisa's forces. Still, the immediate battle was lost, so they retreated and regrouped. With Lorana no longer an option, and after working together with her for a while, Soth had gotten kinda sweet on Kitiara. In his own mind, he had the perfect plan. If and when Kitiara died, he would trap her soul and they would be together for eternity. But he didn't want to betray her and kill her, he was trying to be a better future husband this time. Instead, Kitiara sent him out to kill the woman helping Raislin, her half-brother, to become a god. To be fair, he thought he did that, but in reality he only put the woman into a coma. He then led the undead portions of Kitiara's army in an assault on the Tower of High Sorcery, where Raislin was going to reappear after his bid for godhood was sabotaged. They ransacked the city around it, but when they got to the tower, Raislin's apprentice Dalamar hit Kitiara with a fatal lightning bolt. Soth wanted to capitalise on this and take her soul, but Kitiara left her soul in the care of Tarnis Half-Elven, who wouldn't release it to Soth. Without any other recourse, Soth took her body. He had it preserved and set up next to his throne in Dargard Keep. Soth essentially spent his time brooding and depressed for years over the fact that he couldn't have Kitiara's soul. By the time Mina, empowered by Takesis, found him and offered him his old job back serving the Dark Goddess, he had gotten to the point where he finally felt bad for all the things he'd done. He told Mina and Takesis to shove it, whereupon the Dark Goddess eliminated Isolde's curse, and Soth finally died. Soth is a popular antagonist from Dragonlance, and some say he is the prototypical Death Knight that all similar creatures are based on. 
In addition to all of his living combat prowess and the powers of an undead, he also had command of a power word. If he focused on someone and commanded them to die, it happened immediately. The only time it did not work was when a literal god intervened, and in that case the target still fell into a coma. Also, physically touching Soth's body was said to instantly kill whoever touched him. When he wasn't leading an entire army, his entourage usually consisted of the 13 loyal undead knights and a chariot squad of banshees wielding ice swords. Unlike a lot of popular characters from the books, there's actually a large gap in Soth's history from the time after his first death until the time of the War of the Lance. It's presumed he behaved a lot like Strahd, staying in and around his keep and brooding about his lost lover. However, unlike Strahd, Soth is all anger and vengeance. He firmly believed until the very end of his life that his wife cheated on him and sired someone else's son, then passed it off as his. Soth has been given stats a few times, most recently in the War of the Lance sourcebook published for edition 3.5, where he was a level 17 death knight with a host of scary powers. He's supposed to be the main antagonist for the sourcebook coming in 2023, so we'll see if he lives, or unlives, up to his legacy. Okay, sorry we had to go through that. I mean, of course, if someone had given me the right instructions... Yeah, sorry, I guess that's on me. I'm a little more concerned that you found this much information on a Lord Sloth, actually. Oh, I mean, yeah, but I wouldn't worry about that. Really? It's a lot of notes. And I'm seeing huge rending claws in a lot of these sentences. Yeah, yeah, I mean... I think that they have world domination plans or something, but they're moving very slowly. Don't like me like that. That wasn't a pun. No, it was just painfully bad. I'm going to go into the scrying pool and see if our listeners are providing any better conversation. <laughs> have you seen our listeners' feedback? You think I make bad puns? What news from the north? Dinos of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, what's the story of when the biggest enemy that your character faced was gravity? Was it a nice, gentle conclusion or a hard stop at the end? And are you familiar with Advanced 5th Edition? Have you played in the Amethyst setting before? Any stories from those experiences that you'd like to share? Kicking things off, Jonah Free writes in on Discord and says, Hi Heroes Rise, thanks for a great episode. I appreciate the cultural discussion on the monkey people and falling mechanics. My character is in mid-jump plunging into a dark pit right now. It's kind of nice and kind of troubling to know that all the ways that she could go splat. Update, fortunately the pit was only 10 feet deep. My character survived, taking the full 6 points of falling damage. The Verbose Bard wrote in on Discord to say, I am not familiar with Advanced 5e other than it being mentioned a few times in past episodes. It does seem intriguing, though. As for gravity being my biggest enemy, it would have to be in my first campaign, The Horde of the Dragon Queen. It was at the end of Chapter 1 when we face off against the Half-Dragon Champion. After a quick discussion amongst our party, we decided these villains had no honor, so neither would we. Everyone but myself would participate in the one-on-one -on -one combat. We had left the gate to the keep open because we had heavily trapped it in a previous battle. It was my bard's job to spring the traps when the time was right. However, I got the great idea to climb up high above the doorway and try to dump a barrel of oil and caltrops on the kobolds as they entered. When the battle kicked off, the plane was working perfectly, that is until I decided to light a torch and drop it into the oil I had just dumped on the kobolds. After failing a deck save, my character lost her balance and fell from the top of the wall into the boiling hot oil and caltrops. 
We rolled up all the damage and she had 2 HP left. I thought we had made it until my DM pointed out that the torch I lit landed in the oil. Maybe gravity wasn't my biggest enemy that day. Maybe it was my own hubris. And Gathmimbar on Discord says, I had a situation early on in 5th edition. I think it was the very first 5e game I ever ran. And in the second session, the party went to a very busy castle town. They were searching for some items around the town, and the monk wanted to parkour around the city. At one point, there was a drop about 50 feet he needed to cross, and had to make a running jump to cross it. Given the players were level 1 or 2, there was some risk involved. He rolled a nat 1, and fell 50 feet. Fortunately, only taking enough damage to go unconscious instead of going splat. That story of the verbose bards with the, uh, with the torch and the oil, I... I mean, I did laugh halfway through, but that, that was terrible. Um, I'm uh, I'm glad that your character made it through, though. So do you guys have any stories about gravity in your games? I've been trying to think, but I can't come up with anything specific. I am the kind of player who uh, knows about Eberron, and so <laughs> featherful tokens are usually... I know, I know, hard to imagine. Um, but Featherfall tokens are usually in my inventory somewhere, just in case. Um, I think the only time that I really have any experience with gravity is um, utterly failing a skill check that I still think the DM... Like, okay, so we, I'm going to turn this into a fight instead about DMing styles, but in my opinion, if your character should be naturally good at something, then either the DC needs to be lower or they should just automatically succeed at a thing. So when my dwarf character, who basically I sort of specifically modelled him sort of after the very stereotypical Lord of the Rings dwarves, who are just experts at digging and climbing, etc. When he apparently tried to scale the most basic of walls, slipped and face-planted, and according to the DM, lost a tooth. I was a little bit like, really? I don't think that they should have actually had that for just trying to climb up just the tiniest bit of wall. But hey, you know, not my table. Well, it was my table, but not my table, if you see what I mean. And that was the ruling. So yeah, no, the, the most I've ever done is lost a tooth due to gravity. I mean, personally, I've fallen off all kinds of crap, but D&D-wise just that so i have a couple and okay one of them is that when we were deeming our tomb of annihilation game we had a sorcerer in the party who just constantly had featherfall on hand featherfall was their favorite spell and that particular player what had a really busy life and also did not show up all that often to session, but we all knew that that player would cast Featherfall if anybody fell. So we were just kind of like, well, you know, it, his character's here. You, you, you guys aren't going to fall. It's okay. <laughs> See, Featherfall, I keep telling you, it's great. <laughs> uh, my second one is when I was a player in a Strahd campaign, and our I'm trying, I'm trying to remember. I think he was a sorcerer as well. No, I was the sorcerer. Sorry. What was he? Gosh, I don't even remember. Anyway, one of the other players, his character 
fell off the stairwell that we were going up, and it was one of those like really wide spiral staircases that have a big hole in the middle. Mm-hmm. And he fell off, and my character was really mad at him. I told you guys before that uh, I had just witnessed mm. one of the other characters killing my best friend in front of me. It was that guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, first, I, I stood there and watched him fall for a couple seconds, and then I was like, ugh, fine. And I just jumped off after him, caught him, cast fly on him, and then rode him the, all the way up <laughs> <laughs> until we were back with the party. Turning him into a literal magic carpet. Yep. I sort of, I do have a story that's sort of the opposite, where like anti-gravity. Yes. <laughs> so we were actually playing in Wild Beyond the Witchlight, but we were playing it at a higher level. So like we were level twelve or thirteen, uh, which is way beyond where you're supposed to be when we got to that point of Witchlight for reasons I right. won't get into right now. But anyway, we had a five-person party, and there was a fighter, a, a ranger, I was a wild magic sorceress, and we had a barbarian and a an artificer. And we were on an airship that got sideswiped by a gargantuan-sized flying creature, so it started plummeting. And... The DM was like, okay, so everyone prepped to roll for falling damage from a ridiculous height. Except we had just finished a fight where my wild magic went off and (laughs) I had had levitate cast on myself. So effectively the ship and everyone just fell out from beneath me and I was like, oh well, I'll be down in a few minutes as my slow descent starts. Then the um, wild magic barbarian effectively was able to use one of their class features i think it was and cast featherfall on the yeah he cast featherfall on the ranger and the fighter so that everybody they all started falling slowly and then the artificer made the successful argument that he had actually got the airship working in the first place so he convinced the DM to allow him to make a roll to jury rig like a glide apparatus out of the remaining pieces, which the DM let him. He basically crit the roll, so he got to slowly glide down to the ground as well. So the only one that actually plummeted was the semi-story required NPC who ended up at zero HP. Beautiful. I feel like I got a few details of that story wrong, but that was the general gist is the DM was thinking, okay, entire party falling from an airship, and it actually only ended up that one or two people were falling. And one of which was the key mission NPC that you were escorting that could not die, otherwise you could have start the whole thing over again. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Nice. And that brings us to this week's community questions. The new UA is out. What do you think about the new classes? Do you agree the ranger has a role now? Is the bard being pigeonholed? Is the rogue a rogue? And what do you think of the feats and rule changes the UA dropped on us? Are they continuing a positive trend in tweaking and cleaning up the rough edges of 5th edition? Or are they dragging the game down into a muted, unfun mess of confusion? 
Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 226th entry into our Chronicle. We'll be back with our 227th entry on October 19th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at heroesrisednd. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favorite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy, and be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout to save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you live recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super-secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some distant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow. And that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks so much for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our social media mage Ray Ray, our Conjuration Cabal, Bloodlick, Indigo Spectre, and Gath Memvar, and our audio alchemists Mikey, Bremwin, and Tomasthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders Marty Chadoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sabi, Rat Queen, Amber Squirrel Craning, Strife, Cauldron, Daft Cronk, The Record Spinning Economy, The Shadow, known only as Azrael, and That One Guy. Vincept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincept.bandcamp.com and Low of Lowe's Layer, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Layer and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Layer. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. Sorry, apparently I've lost my voice. Hang on. <laughs> Further, it adds a lot more har- harmonization. That's the Google says that word is wrong. <laughs> yeah, but it probably doesn't on Lennon's screen. I was going to yeah. say, Google can start off because I know it's flagging up for a Z instead of an S, which is how it should be spelled. <laughs> so another thing about cutting words, since you mentioned it, is that now it only supplies... Oh, supplies. <laughs> supplies. So, sneak attack. Oh, hang on. Let me. <laughs> this existential uh, crisis of Austrians is brought to you by Rogues. No, it's not existential. It's mechanical. This mechanical Do crisis have- of Austrians brought to you by Rogues.
Well, what you should have said, Ryu, is you get to use your charisma saving throw when it says you can use your charisma saving throw. And that's the Jeremy way. Can you tell me what charisma is, please? Look, Ostron, you can use your charisma when it says you can use your charisma. Right? Yeah. It's that straightforward. Reading the ability confers the ability. That's going in the so, blooper reel. Figure out a segue on your own, damn it. Well, now that we're all caught up with the D with the D and D latest the news. With the D and D latest news. <laughs> yes. Well, now that we're all caught up with the latest D and D news, let's take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep. And it, it, oh, uh, <laughs> so close. Uh. <laughs> Sauce first appearance. First, first appearance. <laughs> you said she had a lot of lines and she's not even a paragraph in. And I I just I, I just love that description. <laughs> His loyal knights also got cut up cut up. Mm. Mm. I mean uh, again arguably, yeah. 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 His loyal knights also got cut up. Darn it. Caught. Mm, I, caught again. Caught again, they, up. They kinda did. Mm. Oh, and eventually those elves who told him about his wife were sent back to him as banshees to remind him that he was a cataclysmi- cataclysmically. And that is oh, almost and- a pun. I yeah. don't. It, it almost is. You can prove nothing. <laughs> I'm going to just skip. I'm just going to remove that. And okay. you keep typing and I'm going to go look something up real quick. And by typing, I mean speaking. Typing? Okay. You, you keep typing <laughs> I mean, I with could, your mouth I- hole and... Rude.